Hello, Oshie here. Thanks for downloading the show. As you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not working. You might not be working. Uh, but Andy, my audio producer, and Rachel, my show producer, they're working. To help pay them, I need to play an ad. Now, depending on where you are and how you listen, you might hear an ad. So if you do, thank you. If you don't, you're going to hear Sophia Hamlin Wang say something cool. Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The world's emitting around 38 billion tonnes of CO2 annually. And if you um, look at the UN's reports, well, we've got around eight to 10 years to change the way that we emit CO2 or do something drastically different. So what my company does is we look at capturing emissions from any industrial place like a steel or a cement factory or, or a generator or we suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and we look for ways to utilise the carbon and turn it into usable materials. So what we focus on is cements, plasterboards and other silica-rich products. But really what we do at the end of the day is we look for a way to turn gaseous emissions into solid things that will be able to be stored for tens of thousands of years. That is carbon utilisation expert Sophia Hamblin-Wang, and this is episode 335 of Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Sophia Hamblin Wang is on the show. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Mineral Carbon International, an Australian company that's working very hard on decarbonizing the atmosphere and repurposing the CO2 from many industrial processes and locking it up 
and building materials and other things. Uh, she's a fascinating young woman and more about her in a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. If this is your first episode, what is this show? Well, it's basically, it's really simple. It's a conversation designed to help make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something that you hear on today's show is guaranteed to make you go to bed tonight feeling a little better about everything that you did uh, than you did last night. That's it. That's the show. Uh, who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm an author, uh, a TV host, um, a rose counter sometimes, a uh, very loud suit-wearing person on a show called The Masked Singer. What else do I do? I, I lift uh, heavy sandbags in the backyard. I did a lot of deadlifts today. And um, what else do I do? I wear a baby and I go and get bread. And then there was no bread. So I had to keep walking and find another place that had bread. Because this, yeah, it's, it's obviously, this is like what it was like when I grew up in Brisbane. We weren't in a pandemic. We were just in Brisbane. It's like, oh, this shop doesn't have any stuff. Let's have to go to the other shop. That's just basically what it was. And that was it. We just, that's how we lived. And it's kind of wild that we're back to that now. But anyway, what else do I do? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly getting cranky at my dog, Frank, who's having a tough time. And... Um, what else am I doing? Oh, I'm, I'm watching a show called Ozark with my wife. And what else am I doing? Um, I'm listening to a podcast called Midair Brawl uh, with Luke Heggie and Nick Cody, and it is an extraordinary respite from uh, the various grim COVID-19 news that um, we are all inundated with every moment of the day. It's uh, basically just a conversation between Nick and Luke about a fight that's taken place on a plane. Uh, it may not sound like it's very dangerous to work out to. I was working out today listening to it and not a good idea to have a kettlebell above your head when you snort laugh to something that Heggy says. Bad call. Anyway, uh, it's a very funny show. It's called Midair Brawl. Get it where you get your, your podcast. Well, I think well, that's it. Anyway, I've been doing this show since 2013. I've been doing it twice a week. Monday, I speak with a guest. Friday, I speak with you. That's it. Thanks to everybody that got in touch through the week and tagged me on Instagram where you listen to the show. Absolutely loving to see where you listen to this show. It makes a massive uh, difference to me to know how you're using this podcast in your life. I, like I said, I use podcasts when I train. I use podcasts when I drive. I use podcasts just to kind of help me do housework and fill my brain uh, with people that I like to pretend to my friends. <laughs> Um, that's, what I, that's what I like to do. It, it's great to see where you're taking it in. You can always email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Penny sent a cracking, cracking picture of her snuggled in, nestled in underneath the pandanus palms at Noosa at Main Beach. What a view. Brilliant, Penny. And Brett and Mia, brilliantly, much like Audrey and I do, husband and wife side by side on Zwift in the garage listening to the show. Zwift is a cycling platform that I ride on. It's like, you know how you go to the gym and there's a treadmill, right? And then you'll you'll see there's a bike at the gym. Well, there's a thing that you can get where it's basically the treadmill bit or the, the exercise bike part of the machine, but you get to put your own bike on it because there's a thing. Bikes like shoes are very bespoke fit to your body, okay? Because some people's bit between their knee and their hip is longer than other people's or some people's between their knee and their ankle is shorter than other people's. And so you have to get your bike if, you know, you get your bike fit properly to your body and then it doesn't hurt or, you know, it's very efficient when you use it that way. Anyway, so when you use one of these things, you can use your own bike on the part that makes the resistance. And because um, they're all very smart now, they can connect via Bluetooth and such and such. And so when the little man or woman on the screen goes up a hill, it gets harder to pedal. And Audrey and I ride side by side in a room upstairs. 
And uh, that's just what Mia and Brett were doing. Mia has unfortunately got her arm in a cast, Matthew Heyman style, which is brilliant. Mia, I look forward to you winning Paris Roubaix next year. Um, but brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If this show is at all of any value to you, if you you know do listen to the show regularly and the show brings you some value through the week, I would ask you, the, the look, the one thing you really can do for me is to just tell somebody else about the show. That would be really, really helpful. Tell someone you know, tell someone you don't know. Just at one point this week, fling a link of an episode that resonated with you, pop it in a group chat somewhere, I don't mind, um, whatever. That would be really, really helpful. That's the, the best thing you can do for me. So thanks in advance. To check in with you this week, I've got to say thanks to everybody that did get in touch about Friday's episode where I talked about empathy and I was just basically talking about my you know experience of two particular you know, events that happened within minutes of each other, which it's kind of really hit me right between the eyes. And um, I was asking, I like, I didn't know a solution. I didn't know how to help. And uh, two people did get in touch, two legend listeners got in touch with ways that we can help our community who are most desperate in these times. Mumformum.org.au, M-U-M-F-O-R-M-U-M.org.au. That's a support service that conducts home visits for mums in the last trimester of their pregnancy and in the crucial first year. That's an um, extraordinary bit of support. If you listen to Friday's show, you'll know why that's an important one. And also Lauren, who's a chef at Oz Harvest in Sydney. Now, Oz Harvest are a non-profit who they basically rescue food from supermarkets and restaurants and other places, food that would otherwise go uneaten. And then they donate that food to a range of shelters and agencies. And also, they usually host cooking classes and things where corporates cook meals for disadvantaged peoples. But since COVID-19, they've retooled and they're, they're currently, they're cooking about 5,000 meals a week, which is a big deal. So you can, you can support Mum for Mum and Oz Harvest. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of places that um, will support those vulnerable in your area. And if you can financially support them, please financially support them. If you can't, totally understandable right now, you can support people in other ways by amplifying their message and talking about it and being aware of it and letting other people know about their work. Um, it is a lovely day where we are. Uh, it is cold, but it is delightful. But in the back of my mind, I have this awful feeling that even though it's a bit cool, it's not as cold as it kind of usually was in May. And um, look, I remember May in Sydney when I first moved here in 1999. It was cold and nasty. This week it's 27 degrees and lovely. I think that's the the big problem. I, I always think the big problem with global warming is that the symptoms are just so lovely in the otherwise uncomfortable winters that people don't notice so much for most of the year. And and we won't. If that's the way that we notice global warming, we won't notice it until it's really, really, really too late. However, look, it's going to be summer again in six months, and we are going to be facing another bushfire season. And this pandemic that we are in right now is testing us as a global community. And in many ways, in many ways, it's a dress rehearsal for the real test, which is the vast global effects of a warming planet. I don't need to go through them with you. You know them by now. You know what's happening. They're happening to you. They're happening to me. They're happening to everyone on earth. They're happening today. And they're getting more intense and more damaging to the fragile web of interconnected systems that we rely on for survival. Just think about what's happening right now with the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Countries around the world are struggling. Thousands of people are dying. But some countries are doing better than others because they're relying on science. Australia, for example, is doing incredibly well. One of the best in the world, actually. I am so unbelievably very proud of us for all that we've done. 
My brother, who lives in Michigan with his husband, crikey, the other day there, there were white guys wearing face masks holding AR-15 assault rifles occupying the state capitol building, demanding that the governor reopen the economy and stop the social distancing laws. Look, let's be honest, if they were anything but white guys, we'd be talking about some dead guys right now, but that's another story. But here in Australia, look, we've done incredibly, incredibly well. Yes, there has been and will be a massive economic hit. Yes, it's been a massive blow to our collective mental well-being. But for the most part, we have recognised that this is a very dangerous situation and that if we don't all do all that we can right now, it would be devastating beyond measure to us as a community. So we as a country have shown that we understand that we're prepared to take the bitter pill of short-term disruption in favour of long-term sustainability. We're doing it right now. We've also shown that we are resilient to change and we can absorb changes to our way of life that are now going to be how we go forward. And we're okay with that. We've shown that we as a community can, okay, this is how we do things now. So we've shown that. And that gives me extraordinary hope, extraordinary hope. Because as a nation, we stand to lose just so much if we keep on the path of no policy as our climate policy. However, as a nation, we stand to gain more wealth and riches and sustainability and safety and security then we might realise if we commit to a change for long-term sustainability. By and large, I feel that the successes and failures in this global fight of COVID-19 have all been down to communication, effective communication and ineffective communication. In the words of the Australian rapper Briggs, who's been on this show before, he was texting me the other day, about, remember that day, uh, 13th of March, I think it was, when 10,000 people rolled into Bondi Beach in the world, how dare you, da 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 And he said, look, 10,000 people don't go to Bondi Beach during a pandemic out of spite. They go because it hasn't been explained to them clearly enough why they shouldn't go and why they have a responsibility to their community to do their part for themselves and others. So in the interests of communicating well about the upsides, as we adapt to a warming, changing climate. That brings me to our guest today, Sophia Hamlin-Wang, and we'll talk to her right after this. If conversations that aim to shine a positive light on the possibilities available to us as we adapt to a changing climate and why it's important to play your role in fighting for those possibilities, if those conversations are your thing, you might be interested in episode 309 of this podcast with the all-time great Erin Brockovich. Somebody's finally literally going to hold them accountable, and this is the only way that it can be done. But that's happening through awareness, through information, and through people rising and these disasters before we take note. But I do think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the moment is here. That's the shift. We are going to recognize again as the people. We have a heart. We have a brain. We've had the courage and we can find our way home and not fall into the illusion that somebody's got our back. Superman's not coming. Tag, you're it. You can catch up with the unstoppable Aaron Brockovich on episode 309 of Better Than Yesterday in your favorite podcast app, which I'm assuming you're listening to right now. Now, back to this episode. So, let me tell you about my guest today. 
Sophia Hamblin Wang is the COO of Mineral Carbonation International. She is a circular economy specialist and a lecturer at the University of Sydney. Sophia and I met when we both appeared on a climate solutions episode of Q&A. In, uh, on the ABC television station uh, back in February here in Australia. On that night, uh, after the show, we're having a chat. I held out my hand and into it she placed a matchbox-sized lump of concrete. I felt the density, the weight, the heft of this lump as I tossed it around between my palms and then she proudly told me this product was made with captured CO2 that her company had harvested from an industrial chemical factory. I was holding a weighty chunk of man-made rock in my hand that had been created from gas. See, our big problem, bigger than COVID-19, far bigger than COVID-19, is there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Everything around you is made from carbon. Plants pull it out of the air to create their structures. A massive oak tree doesn't get that big from the water. The carbon in the cells of the tree was once carbon in the air. The issue we've got is that we've been unlocking that carbon from those solids by burning it, uh, mainly from the fossil fuels that we burn to power our way of life, our modern way of living. And then we dump that carbon into the atmosphere, into its gaseous form. That carbon dioxide then acts like a giant blanket, trapping the sun's heat in the atmosphere. And as you know, that heat is causing more and more extreme weather events, droughts, storms, sea level rise, and it is just getting worse. So it is in our interest to stop putting so much CO2 into the air as we can and try to get as much CO2 out of the air as we can, as quick as we can. But... Trees take a long time to grow, and this is where Sophia's company comes in. And other similar technologies that she talks about also come into play, because they address not only the issue of too much carbon in the atmosphere, but also creating a new industry, and in Australia, a very important export industry, because Australia stands to gain massively from such technologies. In Sophia's words, we need to be ambitious, and now is the time to do it. I found Sophia to be brilliant, driven, and charismatic. She's just the kind of young leader that we need when it comes to pushing these kinds of carbon technologies. And I'm grateful that she's in the world. I'm grateful she's doing what she's doing. If you like what you hear, let her know. She's on Twitter at S Hamblin Wang, S-H-A-M-B-L-I-N-W-A-N-G. Enjoy this conversation with Sophia Hamblin Wang. How are you today? I'm well. We're, we're quite obviously in my bedroom because I live in a share house and uh, I have two other housemates who are also working from home. So. <laughs> and what part of the world are you in? I live in Canberra. I was thinking about this the other day. As we, we're, we're recording this in the first week of April 2020, as you're coming into lockdown and you can see it on the horizon and you live in a share house, is there a moment where you'd be like, I could chance it, I could get out now? or I'm just going to stick with this lot. <laughs> there was never a hesitation in my mind. I love my housemates and we all had to agree at the very beginning what our that we would have the same habits and the same approach to lockdown and isolation and I think that's helped us to control all of our anxiety about it because it's one thing if one person is not seeing anybody. If your housemate's going out and going to lots of parties and whatever, then they're potentially bringing um, more risk into the house. So we've every few days we have a chat about where we're at and 
it's been a really interesting time. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering, I'm thinking back to my own share house days and I'm thinking, I mean, you know, I definitely live with people who you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be a bloke you don't recognise on your couch and be like, <laughs> oh, hello, I'll make up her name. <laughs> you with Laura, are you? Oh, cool. Nice to see you, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we pride ourselves on being a house that is happy to do that, but just not right now. Yeah. And how are you? How are you feeling with everything? Um, look, it's what's kind of interesting is that giving into the powerlessness of it all is actually it's something that I've had to work very, very hard on when it comes to climate anxiety. And that's a, a muscle that I've been flexing quite seriously uh, in the last year or so. And so I'm kind of able to access that skill set around this, which has been quite helpful, to be honest. And look, I'm not going to lie, part of me sees all this and goes, this is the chance. This is the chance we have to redesign the system. It's a massive dis disruption to business as usual, that's for sure. It's going to jog a lot of people out of some ingrained um, mindsets, definitely. It's an opportunity to, because we'll be here for a while, this isn't two weeks and it's over. This is a couple months that we'll need to be here. It's an opportunity to think about, okay, so what is actually important to me? Do I, have I just been running around because that's what the ads on my phone and my TV have been telling me to do? Do I really need a new car? Do I really need a new T-shirt? Hurry now. Or that if you order before by 11, we can have them posted to you tomorrow. There's three incredible T-shirts. Look how hot this bloke looks in them. Look, there's a girl hugging him. You should buy three. Like, I don't need three T-shirts. But, you know, I've been duped into this idea that that sort of consumption is just part of something I should be doing all the time. And now that I'm not doing it, I don't miss it. Didn't you tell me when I met you that you hadn't been shopping in years? Yes, true. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't been shopping in a long time. The only new clothes that come into my life are when my wife gets bored of me wearing the same thing all the time. And she says, my God, would you please put something else on? And then so about once every six months or so, she'll go, look, I bought you these T-shirts. They'll look good on you. It's like, okay, thanks, honey. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm old. I just stopped caring, Sophia. I stopped caring. That sounds fantastic and liberating, to be honest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I stopped caring. So what's the vibe like in Canberra in the lockdown situation? I mean, we're at this unprecedented time in global history. It's a word we use all the time, unprecedented, usually to refer to weather. But we're at this unprecedented time of global history where governments who not even a year ago were saying there's no way we would go down the path. I'm going to make this sound way worse than what they actually said, but there's no way we're going down the path towards socialism and giving everyone free childcare, blah, blah, blah. Boom, free childcare. You know, telehealth for everyone in the country, remote education, distance education for everybody. What is actually looking like universal basic income? Like in the last three weeks, it's fucking insanity. It's amazing. So what's it like in the belly of the beast in, in Canberra? Surely you know people that work within that machine. What's it like there? A lot of the people here are um, 
very alarmed and most of my friends are working from home. Uh, I have a few mates from my ANU days who are staffers at Parliament House and things like that and some people who work in the press gallery and I think at the moment for the most part whether you're in Canberra or you're in Brisbane or in Innisfail or Bendigo you're working from home and connecting with others all in the same way. So it's quite an equaliser. We are proximate to Parliament living in Canberra, but at the same time, that doesn't really mean anything right now. And to be honest with you, I, I've i oscillated personally between high anxiety and feeling in control. And on the weekend, I took the whole weekend off reading the news and social media because I found that um, it was starting to become too much, like too much information coming in. And I was heartened to read this morning that Canberra in the past 24 hours has had no new cases of coronavirus. So I feel a little bit proud that um, most of my friends have been in full isolation and lockdown over the past two weeks or three. And I, I think every time I go to the supermarket or um, go to the pharmacy or whatever, Everyone's a little bit uneasy and uh, looking at each other sideways. And all I want to do is give all of my friends and even strangers a hug <laughs> because I'm a really big, I'm a tactile person. I'm a massive hugger. And that is really missing from my life at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am so lucky that I get to, you know, cuddle a baby and, and cuddle my wife and have that physical contact with other humans. But, you know, there was a time when I lived alone and you know, there was no physical contact with other people. And if I was staring down the barrel of a couple of months of it, it would be tough, you know. We'll get through it, though. It's a marathon and not a sprint. <laughs> and so long as we keep that in mind and do the things that help to keep us warm on the inside and connect to our friends and family and community, we'll be okay. Getting up every morning and... Acting in accordance with our values is uh, probably one of the only things that we can do. It gives us that internal locus of control. You get to get up every morning and literally go to work saving the world, which all I do is make podcasts and usually always say the wrong thing to my wife and I generally kind of fuck up in my relationship every day, which is not great. But you get to literally get up every morning and you go to work trying to save the world. Now, we met on set at the ABC television show Q&A, which was a, a great deal of fun. It was a, an extraordinary challenge for me to be a part of that show, but it was a big deal that I got to be there and do it with you and uh, two other people that were there on the panel with us. You are working very, very hard on the kind of cutting edge of the entrepreneurial sector that is looking to find this kind of interesting ellipse within the Venn diagram of how can we make money? Holy shit, the world's ending. What can we do here to stop the world from ending, but also make some money? <laughs> and I think for me personally, that's a great pathway forward for all of us. How did you somehow, how did you fall into carbon sequestration? Thank you very much. <laughs> I love my job. And I was actually doing a PhD at ANU in corporate social responsibility around the year 2013 and 
I really had seen myself in an academic role of studying how to create business models that make the world a better place to maximise social impact and maximise return on investment. Because I think that in order to get a lot of the structures and large corporations on board and use their philanthropic spending for good, we need to be able to do it in a really clever way that makes money. So I was um, trying to, I was doing a PhD at the time and yeah, this, the company MCI just attracted $9.12 million worth of funding and it was based in Canberra and actually right exactly in my wheelhouse. It's turning CO2 into building materials. It is trying to create profits out of waste and circularity is where my heart beats. And so the founder of the company happened to be someone that I'd known for a very long time and was a one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs. Also happened to be my brother. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I agreed to take a year's leave from my PhD to set up the structures of the company to hire all of the postdocs, PhDs and professors and corporate capability. And I just, from this day I stepped in there, I realized that there was a way better use of my skill set, which is really traversing business and science, communicating to larger audiences that you can make money from research commercialization for the good of the world. And I never looked back. <laughs> so that's how I came into it. And yeah. I really think that we have the potential to make a big impact in global emissions and, yeah. and utilization of carbon. So let's let's just unpack that. We're currently seeing what happens where business isn't incentivized to uh, look at a solution for a very, very big problem that might happen. We, got, we saw the first coronavirus 15 years ago, but because it was kind of rare, no pharmaceutical companies went into the research of any kind of vaccine. So 15 years since SARS-1, we've now had mm -hmm. MERS, we had there's another one, and now we're at SARS-2. So that's 15 years where we could have you know, where businesses could have been developing it, but it's billions and billions of dollars to create a vaccine for anything. But we're so in such a problem right now because there was no incentive to do it. Why Why would we? Why would we spend all this money when we don't need to? So trying to find a place to incentivise businesses and incentivise the private sector into socially responsible, globally responsible, environmentally responsible business models is an extraordinary challenge and I commend you for it. So people kind of get a bit of a handle on on what it is we're talking about. How would you describe, say if you, you're down at Coles and you're 1.5 metres away from the next person and they turn around and say, so what do you do? You say carbon sequestration and they're standing there, they've got their soy milk in one hand and their sangers in the other. What's your answer when they go, what's carbon sequestration? <laughs> so basically... Um, the world's emitting around 38 billion tonnes of CO2 annually and we have the way of life that we live right now and we've got all of the infrastructure in the world that we need to live and have happy lives. And if you um, look at the UN's reports, they say that um, in order to reach 1.5, well, we've got around 8 to 10 years to change the way that we emit our CO2 or do something drastically different in order to not warm above 1.5 degrees, which is a, a catastrophic thing. So what my company does is we look at emissions and look at capturing 
emissions from any industrial um, place, any emitter like a steel or a cement factory or, or generator, or we suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. And we look for ways to utilise the carbon and turn it into usable materials. So what we focus on is cements and plasterboards and other silica-rich products. But really what we do at the end of the day is we look for a way to turn gaseous emissions into solid things that will be able to be stored for tens of thousands of years. And so... Really, what I've noticed working in this industry for the past seven years is that it would be great if governments would care about this issue and legislate so that uh, everyone was capturing their emissions and either storing it in some way or utilising it. So that's carbon capture, utilisation and storage, if you use the industrial terms. But we're waiting around for something like that to happen. And at the end of the day, we're going to be waiting a long time. So our company is creating business models because really business is starting to take the lead in this area. Um, They're not waiting for governments to make them do it anymore because they partially, their employees want them to, the market wants them to. And I would like to think that they're doing it because it's just the right thing to do as well. Yeah. I was talking about this the other day on the show. It's, you know, there's arbitrary numbers. Why 1.5 degrees? What's that got to do with the price of fish? Why not two? Why not 2.5? Why not three? It's about 1.5 degrees to 2.5 degrees that we expect the West Antarctic ice sheet to collapse. And there uh, is enough ice in that to bring the sea level up three and a half metres around the world, which will really make... COVID-19 look like someone backed over your wheelie bin accidentally and now, oh, you've got to get out of the car and pick up a few takeaway cups. All right. <laughs> it's it's tipping points and magnifying effects that we, many things that we haven't even anticipated. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Not to be too alarmist. I no. Actually, actually, I send a message of climate hope, right? I try not to talk too much about the doom and gloom because we're moving past that in a way we're trying to create solutions and work with industries that may find it really difficult to decarbonize but that may want to Um, and we're trying to be pragmatic about what life will look like what industries will look like and how to provide that pathway in the easiest possible way. And the incredible life expectancy we have on Earth for humans as a, as a whole is due to so many modern processes of life. And those things include steel and purification of water supplies and building materials to make those water supplies. And I love all of those things, okay? I don't want them to go away. But I know, and you know, and many people know, that there are ways that we can make them that aren't emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere because, as we all know, it's the excess of carbon in the atmosphere which acts like a blanket which magnifies the heat that the sun hits in the earth. It doesn't release again, and therefore that's creating all the warming that causes things like the bushfires which you had in 2019, 2020. Regularly, carbon comes out the atmosphere through plants and things like that. We emit carbon as we exhale. We emit carbon. But, you know, you can look at a tree and go, that's a beautiful tree. I can look at a tree and go, there's three tons of carbon sitting right there that I'm under the shade of. Isn't that lovely? But that takes 30 years. It takes 40 years for it to get that big. What you're talking about is a process that literally sucks gas out of the air and turns it into something solid, locking it up so that it then becomes a brick or a wall or a pylon or a freeway or, or a pipe that carries water supply. You're absolutely right. So... 
when you look at a tree, I mentioned this on Q&A, but um, I think a tree is a very elegant technology, mm. I'm using quotation marks, that turns CO2 into building materials. It takes over 30 years or 40 years, as you said. But if you look at the full life cycle of a tree, at the end of the tree's life, if it burns or rots, it releases all of the CO2 that has ever been embedded in its structure back into the atmosphere if it is emitted. So it's one of the important solutions, but it's also not the only one that we should be looking at. Our technology is mineral carbonation, which is actually a, the Earth's natural way that it stores CO2. So a good example is the White Cliffs of Dover mm -hmm. in England. So there are magnesium silicates in the world or lots of like low-grade minerals in that category that over millions of years through weathering or through rain pushing CO2 into the rock sucks up CO2 naturally. And we've just taken that process from millions of years and turned it into a matter of hours in the lab and now in, in industrial size. So, yeah, the earth also breathes in carbon dioxide all the time and it's one of the largest storage solutions um, mm. that the earth already uses, but we just... We need it a bit quicker because we've been tipping the scale a little bit. Yeah, we've been, we've essentially, we've dug up billions of years worth of that carbon that you spoke of, trees being one of them is where we started burning trees. I mean, like we, let's be honest, we only have what we have as humans because we burn things, right? We figured yeah. out how to cook food. And one of the theories is that by cooking food, we release nutrients that then cause their brains to go. But fire has been is indelibly a part of humanity's rise or the ability to heat because it turns one compound into another. So we've always had fire. We've always had heat. We've always had the ability to change natural compounds into other compounds, be it steel or cooking or any other kind of metal or, you know, creating whatever processes we need heat to create it. When you do your process, obviously it's tricky to make sure that the process itself doesn't put out more carbon than, than what you're doing. What are the what are the percentages? What does it what does it work out? Once you've taken the energy, I'm assuming, like in the the room I'm sitting in is I don't know what ten square meters. How are you going to suck the carbon out of this ten square meters? That's going to take you a fan to do it. I'm guessing there's going to be energy that runs that fan. What's the margins here, Sophia? Okay, so it's not just difficult to make sure that you are locking away more CO2 than you're burning. It's critical. No industrial process of carbon utilisation is going to be viable if you're burning more carbon than what you're putting away. So that's from the beginning, we started our process based on a full life cycle assessment and industrial integration. So we, after finishing our pilot phase um, last year, we can certainly confirm that we are a carbon sink and that we lock away more CO2 than we burn, even from taking the rock, crushing it, grinding it, thermally activating it, all the way through to the creation of the product itself. Um, we partner with the technologies that suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that's not our technology exactly, we're the, we're the utilisation. But the pathway to the scale that we need to be at to actually make a difference for our climate change targets, it's looking really positive. We are locking away more CO2 than we're burning and we are scalable to the amount of CO2 that we need to be locking away. But we need to be working a lot more on um, fine-tuning our process and um, working on our engineering scale. 
So that's really what we're focusing on. Um, the carbon economics is just so important. Can you imagine if we were selling a product that ended up burning more, mm. <laughs> burning more energy than necessary? It's it's. We also focus on maximizing the CO two that sucked up, not maximizing the profits per se. Yeah, I mean we are profitable and we're we're making great materials now that make money, but we're going to scale this thing based on CO2 because that's what's going to make a difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the analogy would be you don't want to be the company that's buying their raw materials for 15 bucks and selling it for 10. Exactly. You don't want to be capturing a kilogram of carbon dioxide but burning one and a half kilograms to do that because then it makes it's What's the point? You know. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, and that's a big focus. Does it look like what does it, does it look like a big Dyson vacuum cleaner? Like, what are the what's the, what's the actual machine look like? So that's the direct air capture tech that you're talking about, which sucks CO two out of the atmosphere. Yeah, I can talk about that as well. When I was going to Davos, I stopped in Zurich for a week, and I went to visit the Climeworks, which is a, the technology that does that. They've got these huge vacuum like um, industrial fans that are a couple of stories high and wide and they're just pretty much refining co2 out of the air and pumping it into greenhouses and selling tomatoes and lettuce at a premium and also selling it to coca-cola and making carbon neutral coke wow because that that's the zing just so people understand like when you drink a fizzy drink the zing on your tongue is carbonic acid. When people talk about uh, ocean acidification, that's the same thing that makes soda water go, oh, what's that? That's the acid. That's the carbonic acid. That's what we're talking about. That's what makes seashells brittle because of the acidification of the ocean. That's wild. You, you've got it. You've, got, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah. So they're doing that and they've been able to validate the market. I think off the top of my head, they were selling their CO2 for around $700 a tonne. Mm. And selling it all and people wanted it. People wanted those carbon neutral or carbon negative tomatoes, mm. right? So that's great. Our technology is kind of like a soda stream yeah. where we put rocks into the water yeah. and then you bubble the CO2 through. Uh -huh. And then under certain conditions, we maximize the amount of CO2 that gets sucked up by the rock. And then we process the end material, which is magnesium, carbonate, and silica. We process those into different things. And like I said, we focus on um, cement and plasterboard at the moment. Mm. But that's because if you're looking at locking away 1 million or 1 billion tons of CO2, then you're producing 1 million or 1 billion tons of product. And we don't want to flood markets. Uh, we need to be creating something that the world needs that much of. So mm. cement is compelling in that way and so is a lot of other building materials. So to make it financially, to put the incentive there, you would be wanting to offer a product that is structurally as sound as a current building material, but I'm guessing uh, cheaper. And yes. also comes with the, if you build your high-rise building out of this stuff, you get to have a big green star on your front door and say, look what we did, aren't we great? That's right. And we partner with large cement manufacturers on the creation of our materials. Mm. So we're not going to be creating all of those things ourselves from the beginning because, mm. I mean, we're a relatively small company. We've attracted $20 million worth of R&D grant funding and investment 
to get to where we are, but that's not enough money to create a new a novel cement product where we partner with large, like the world's largest cement manufacturers on these things. And mm. at the moment we're in negotiations with a fair amount of those kinds of companies. So cement is a tricky one because I don't think many people realise it is really, really polluting, isn't it? It is. It really is. Why yeah. is that? Cement itself needs to be heated to such a high um, temperature. It's such a high temperature that when they shut down Wuhan in the Ubay province uh, during the coronavirus uh, shutdown in the early 2020, it's so expensive to turn the cement blast furnaces on. They just left them running. They left them running. (laughs) For the whole three months, these things just stayed on, even though no one was working there. That's so crazy. Completely bananas. But it was cheaper to do that than it was to shut them down and then start them up again. But, yeah, so there's a a huge amount of heat generated. Our product is quite compelling in that way. I mean, what we're trying to do is create carbon-negative building materials and that we'll be able to achieve that um, with plasterboards and other new materials. But we won't probably be getting towards carbon-negative cement, but we have a twofold decrease or twofold impact on carbon with cement. So what we do is um, the cement brick itself that we produce, between 10 to 30% of the Portland cement in that brick is displaced by our product. So that means that only 70% of the emissions were needed to create the Portland cement. And also we embed the emissions from the creation of that back into the product so it's got embedded emissions and a lowering requirement of the amount of Portland cement. So it's really, um, it tests really well with the companies and we're just um, charting a path to market at the moment and what that's going to look like. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's a solution like that that I feel is going to be the sort of thing that gets us at least to the next stage of getting people to think differently about this because it is at this point technologically and I guess, you know, as far as people getting their head around it, maybe a bit much to leap. We're never going to use cement again. But it's the same way that Team Sky won the Tour de France. They couldn't get their head riders whatever it was, 15% faster, but they could get 15 things 1% better. And because they got 15 different things 1% better, they won. 
if we get 30% less CO2 in the cement, then we can get 20% less here, 20% less there, 20% less there. If we can find a way to cut 25, 30, 50% of emissions out of every process along the way, that'll get us a long way to starting to implement these structural and systemic changes into the economy where people start going, actually, you know what, this is all right. And then we might be able to make the, you know, but time is a massive factor. When you talk about scale, when you talk about scale, let's talk about a dream world. Let's say, I don't know, let's just say Jeff Bezos wakes up, wakes up tomorrow and goes, all right, all right, I've figured it out. I'm going to do it. All right, Sophia, have all the money you need. Yep. All right. What do you break ground on? What do you do? What do you build? Okay, so our vision is that in, um, say, 10 to 15 years, if we had 80 to 300, depending on the size and the scenario, 80 to 300 mineral carbonation plants could be locking away 1 billion tonnes of CO2. So into all different kinds of materials. So yeah. we would, you know, you could put one next to any large steel plant or anything that is um, close to the feedstock or the industrial waste that you might want to carbonate because we don't need to only focus on magnesium silicates. Mm. So 300 plants around the world, 1 billion tonnes of CO2, that is a really significant chunk of our emissions target. Mm. Also, uh, that's profitable. That's making money. That's a billion tons annually. Yes, wow. billion tons annually. And a profit, and that it's a business that you've obviously done the sums. That's going to make some cash. That's right. Wow. Well, that's that's a big deal. <laughs> it is. It's <laughs> well, we have to get it right. Over the past seven years that we've been working on it, we've been trying to under sell what we're doing because um, we don't want to over-promise to the market that mm. we'll be doing it quicker or, or whatever. We had a emissions trading scheme when we got our initial <laughs> funding. Yeah, so we got just over $3 million from the federal government, the Australian federal government, the New South Wales government, and an industry partner. And it was like one of our investors captures all of their emissions from their ammonium nitrate factory in Kurugang Island. And so they were capturing 500,000 tonnes of pure CO2 every year because they, they knew it was the right thing to do. And they sold 10% of those emissions to um, make plastics and carbonated mineral waters like we were just talking about. And what do you think they did with the other 90%? Put it back in the air? Vent it straight back up the stack pipe because there are no uses for CO2 right now. Wow. You know, we have some underground injection opportunities, but they're not accessible to all technologies and not all CO2. And so they invested $3 million in us because they knew that there would be a liability in the future for all that CO2 with yeah. under an emissions trading scheme. And I guess that did quite a lot of what the mechanism was designed to do, which is stimulate innovation and get companies thinking laterally and disrupting business as usual, but trying to do it in the easiest, most economical yeah. way. And so we were lucky that we got our funding and we, well, not lucky, sorry, but we had designed our project in a way that we would be nonpartisan and we are able to integrate into lots of different scenarios. And so we were able to stay afloat through many different changes in government and prime yeah. minister. Yeah. <laughs> My heart 
exploded with joy when Australia passed an emissions trading scheme and then it broke with sadness when it was thrown out. There are countries in this world that have had a, an emissions trading scheme for nearly 30 years and it's been going great. Do you think we'll ever get that again? Do you think it's a thing that governments around the world will just have to do to in financially incentivize this sort of thing? I think if we can um, show that it works in other jurisdictions, mm. then perhaps Australia will. But right now, I'm not really focusing on that kind of um, narrative. I'm focusing on getting the job done in the absence of it. Yeah. Because we just need to get on with it and business needs to take the lead and innovation needs to take the lead. And then as soon as the government's ready to talk, and they are actually very open to discussing what this new carbon industry will look like in Australia, the fact that we can be a carbon processing hub, we can be world leaders in that space. We're just focusing on developing the technology so that when and if anything does change, we'll be ready to go. We're not just going to wait because technology takes 20 years to develop from laboratory to market. It doesn't just happen overnight. We can't just click our fingers. Yeah. So that's what I'm focusing on. Sorry, are you telling me that this is another industry that Australia has an opportunity to be posed as a world leader? How, why, what makes Australia so uniquely posed to be able to take advantage of the coming carbon repurposing boom? Really good question. I want to start off by saying that one of the things that I talk about when I'm I'm overseas quite a lot, talking at a lot of international conferences, and I remember when I was, I think I was in high school, but... I think it was Tony Blair who said that the UK, he felt that the UK had a special responsibility to take care and action in climate change because the Industrial Revolution started there. And, yeah, it, without Britain and England doing that, then perhaps all of the emissions wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And I often talk about how a significant amount of the emissions or the carbon resources in our atmosphere have come from Australian ground. You know, we are a resource processing nation. We've got a lot of core competencies in that space. A lot of the jobs of people that I, I know and love and a, a lot of Australians work in minerals processing. So imagine if we could be using those skills and those competencies in creating green building materials and having an ability to process carbon into not only building materials, but fuels and chemicals and all kinds of things that we don't even know about yet. We really are, we're a smart nation with already bulk handling abilities. It just makes sense to me anyway. Are you telling me that though we may not burn that coal, that other countries, those more, those terrible other countries that emit way more than us, they're way worse, they're burning our coal and we have made money off selling them that coal. So we actually have a moral responsibility. Is that what you're saying? I think that we have the opportunity to provide the solution. Why wouldn't we want to be that? That just makes sense. Australia, we're already doing fairly well in the carbon utilisation space. Our company, MCI, is really one of the market leaders in the world, but there are others. And some of our resources, carbon resources in the atmosphere, I think we should be doing everything we possibly can to help the world. And 
I don't really think of it in like Australia has a special responsibility. I think we all have a responsibility. So we all should be doing the maximum amount that we can. I don't think we can minimize any particular country's um, responsibility here. This point in history that we have right now, this instantly impactful global problem of the COVID-19 pandemic has shown, I guess it's almost like a dry run, you know? It's almost like, hey, here's this humongous thing that's going to affect every single person on the planet, all right? How can we cooperate? What can we do about it? Do you have hope that the lessons we're learning right now might translate towards, and the relationships made right now might translate towards actual climate action? 100%. Absolutely. I think that the capital and the resolve that emerges out of this will be more ethical and smarter than before, more connected to others, and less purely profit-driven. I think that it's going to unlock an unbelievable amount of potential with collaboration. It's also going to um, make people open to exploring what a new way of doing business and a new way of living looks like. And because we've been already disrupted in such a huge way, I think when this is over, we're not just going to go back to the way we were and flying everywhere all the time and shooting down ideas because that'll never work. I think that we'll be open to trialing a lot of new things. I can only hope that this... I was took Wolfie for a walk through the park today and, I mean, bear in mind, it's only three weeks in. It's just everywhere. It's just family groups going for walks together. And it was just buoyed my heart. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've got no idea how I'm going to pay the mortgage, but I am so happy <laughs> right now. <laughs> I really am because it's like, well, I could, all I could do is look after my body, look after my family, try to make sure we eat good food and check in on people. And I can't be alone in having this experience of what I thought made me happy in life is changing. Only in the last few days I've noticed this. I can't be alone in that. It's really good to hear you expressing gratitude. It's one of the most important things to do. Yeah. Because I have to, Sophia, because if I think about it, as you know, as you said before, you don't like to spread doom, but if you actually think about what we're facing as far as a, the, a global emergency around climate goes, it's so scary. It's so fucking scary. It really makes you just want to hide under the desk. It really does. And because it is so scary, it's so hard to talk to people about because people just shut down. I mean, I don't know. Did you get any blowback from the Q&A thing? Um, so I listened to your interview with Hamish <laughs> when I was preparing for this. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was really warned by a lot of people to just expect a lot of hate mail. I was told the same about going to Davos, so I was quite prepared for a lot of people to just contact me. And I didn't look at Twitter for a really long time. I'm not a big tweeter anyway, but I had overall, I would say I was prepared for the worst and I got by with almost no mm. bad blowback, but quite a lot of positive feedback and people coming and asking me to come and give uh, presentations. I got asked to present a seven-minute presentation to the Governor-General off the man. back of Q&A. Wow. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Wow. <laughs> That's the I coolest. Just, 
<laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So um, yeah. overall, I didn't get as much, any more than the usual mm. amount. I think haters going to hate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but our message is quite palatable, I think, and we're trying to construct pragmatic solutions mm. to the problem. And so hopefully we just have more people following the process and mm. progress. And um, when we're ready to sell the next stage and show what we've done, I hope that there'll be more people on board with the idea of circular innovation with social impact and for profit for purpose companies. Well, I, I can only hope that the current kick in the belly button that the stock market is getting makes fund managers have a long, hard look at where they're putting everybody's retirement money. And, you know, it is in investing in companies such as yours that yes. they will hopefully go, well, actually, you know, sure, I could throw some money to Exxon, but really in 10 years, is that, can we get by with that? It's black rocks pulled out of all fossil fuels. What, what does that make us, you know? Okay, what's going on here? Oh, these people are Australian. Okay, let's see what we can do about that. I can only hope that similar technologies to yourself become far more attractive on the other side of what's happening. It, and it's going to make fund managers look further, like how can we rapidly make back the gains that we have taken a hit on in the last couple of months? I, I can only hope that there's some sort of alternate effect because of this. And even expanding the definition of success mm. and profit will be ultimately helpful here. If we have this short time span to do something about our emissions, then maybe we can start incentivizing some technologies that may not make a lot of money in the short term, but then in the long term can attract some other market mechanism, then that could also work. Talk to me about redefining your, your definition of success there. What do you mean? Our company, we're going to be profitable in the next scale up of what we do. And so we're selling to the market this technology that, I mean, people would invest in even if we didn't have this environmental or climate outcome. But what about the other technologies out there that might lock away CO2, but they don't make money? I still think it's worth maybe trying to find ways that those companies can make money even in the short term or get more funds to invest in a more of a long-term window, not just five-year windows, which is what we're kind of stuck in at the moment. Mm. If we can expand it out, then a lot of other technologies may get funding and people might spend their careers. There's a lot of amazing brains out there that are looking for things to do, but it's too risky at the moment to bank your career on some technologies that may or may not attract funding or attention. You mentioned to me when we spoke after Q&A that you're not the only people who are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. What are some other, your company primarily has a process that focuses on plasterboard drywall, as they would call it in America, or concrete. What are some other technologies around the world and what are they focusing on? I'm a founding director of an advocacy group in Australia called CO2 Value Australia, and we're aligned with a, an advocacy group, or a, it's called a think and do tank, and they are called CO2 Value Europe, which is a collection of around 70 companies in Europe that either use CO2 as a feedstock in their process or they create carbon dioxide from their process and would like to turn it into something if there was a scalable technology. So it's up and downstream tech. 
and technologies like ours. And they have been quite successful in lobbying and advocating with the European Union to get more traction and support from policymakers so that they don't get defined out of different policy support. And in Australia, we are at MCI and we have a few other technologies. We've started our group um, focusing on CO2 to fuels, to methane and to, I think, CO2 to different um, biofuels and CO2 to chemicals and chemical feedstocks and then other technologies that capture really high quality CO2 and would like to provide that to different industrial settings. There are different universities around Australia that are working on lab-scale technologies that want to commercialise. So there are around seven members in our group right now, including the Climate Change Institute at ANU and some others. But we are looking for any technologies that like to, would like to join. Please do uh, look us up, CO2 Value Australia. And this space is going to move very quickly in the next year, it's going to be a big year for us. Wherever the, the carbon is currently rolling around, basically the atmosphere and the ocean, that there's there's an opportunity there, I guess, to capture it and, and find a way like out in the wild. But what you're talking about is um, mainly like how can we then suck a plant next door to someone that's already processing and creating CO2 as a byproduct and how can we then create that in much the same way that, you know, there's the idea that, What's a process that creates a lot of heat? Can we then capture that heat and use that heat for something else while it's already hot? Can we put a power generator on top of the concrete blast furnace, right? It's already at 1,500 degrees. Exactly. Why don't we use that energy as well rather than just letting it go? There's so many things that we can do. Exactly. And then, and then just chuck something on the top of the chimney and then take all of the emissions and just turn them into cement at the end of it. So that's what I mean when I say industrial integration, but I guess that I probably should have defined what that meant. No, no, it's totally, um, totally, <laughs> totally, totally fine. I also, it might be helpful to mention that I felt a little bit of tension in my career recently because um, when I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, I gave a presentation on a panel and it was about building a new carbon economy and it talked about increasing or maximizing the world's carbon productivity. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, like Ken Rogoff, a Harvard professor, and all of these people in a room, CEOs of big cement and steel and heavy emitting industries, all getting together in Chatham House. So in a safe space where you can't assign what somebody says to anybody and just talked about what actually the next five to 10 years is going to look like and beyond. And one of the guys that spoke on the the day, because the room was pretty much filled with men, he said that his company had committed to net zero by 2050, and that's really good. But what does that really mean anyway? He's not going to be here in 2050 most of the people in this room won't be here in 2050. And so how do we make sure that whatever we do decide to do, that those of us who are signing up are actually doing it in a meaningful way? And it really hit me hard because I realized that all of those big forums and those big international things, they're filled with people who are 50 plus, usually 
a lot of people who looked similar. Um, so in the past, the World Economic Forum has been described as male, pale and stale, <laughs> which I think this year they did a lot of work to try to address and they did a, a pretty good job. But, yeah, I realised that as a younger person working in tech, I'm actually one of the only people in a lot of these rooms who is going to be having a career in 2050. I'm still going to be working in 2050 and we're creating right now the jobs of the future. And so when we're creating our technologies, we're also creating new career paths and new ways of of working and connecting. And so that was quite a revelation for me. I realised that while in the past, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome because I felt like I didn't deserve to be in rooms because I don't have as many years experience or I might not be a, an expert in X or Y. I realized that there is actually a big place for my voice in that room and other diverse voices that aren't always represented. And it made me very aware of that. Of course, because you've got skin in the game. You got absolutely got skin in the game. You're, you know, it's like I once talked to a pilot, and I was kind of fascinated about. You know, I'd just been reading a Lawrence Gonzalez book called Deep Survival, and I was talking to a pilot on on a plane. He was travelling from somewhere to somewhere else. I was going, "Yeah, but what about this? What about?" And he just turned to me and he goes, "Like, I want to make it home to my family too. I don't want to crash. Of course, I follow the procedures." I was like, "Oh, of course, of course." So similarly, like, I'm going to fucking be there. Like, I'm going to be living in this plus 1.5 degree world or more, I'm saving my own ass as well as trying to make yeah. some money. You know, whereas what you're describing is it's a bunch of people in suits who are between one lunch and one dinner going, ah, oh, yeah, 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 you know. Yeah, how do we pay lip service or yeah. or whatever, yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, I was talking to Audrey the other day, I'm like, there's got to be a way, it won't be me that does it, but there's got to be something around the next election when, you know, you're talking to people over the age of 60, uh, like, remember how we kept you alive during COVID-19 by letting our careers get absolutely destroyed? How about you return the favour? Yeah. <laughs> Vote this way for this particular thing so that when we're your age, we'll still have a world to live in. Please. <laughs> yeah, please. Please. Overall, though, I'm guessing you wouldn't, you know, you obviously do this because you love it and you do this because you believe in it. Do you feel hope? in the way that capital is moving, the way that the private sector is moving? Because governments seem to be, as we spoke on Q&A, governments are like, it's all way too hard and they're so afraid to change their minds they can't move on things. Yet, you know, we have just yeah. seen a Liberal government in Australia basically give everybody free childcare, something they said they wouldn't do nine months ago. Do you see that in the private sector and these massive corporations that do control so much of the world's movement and energy usage and, and consumption, do you see hope? Do you see positivity? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you just look at some of the reports coming out of places like um, McKinsey and uh, some of the leaked stuff out of JP Morgan and other really large capitalist companies, global companies that extract a lot of value and wealth out of those traditional um, emitting industries, there is a huge shift there. And there's only so long that governments can not listen to business. I presented a paper in New York just after Q&A and it was a McKinsey event at their New York headquarters and somebody, they re released this climate risk report, which was really thorough and it was like, 
let's take this seriously because this is what business as usual looks like. This is what it looks like if we do something now. And this is what it looks like if we wait a few years and then suddenly try to change once we realize that shit's real. Yeah. And one of the questions at the end was like, hey, so much of your report just really echoes what the IPCC and the UNFCCC and the World Bank has said about climate change. I mean, we've known about this for a very long time. And one of the McKinsey people said, yeah, but it wasn't being taken notice of. There's certain things that need to be repeated. And that was a really big indicator to me that those who aren't normally talking about it are starting to get on board and indicate that they care or they're going to be more active in the way that they do business and who they do business with and for what end. We've seen in the last 10 weeks or so around the world that when the externality is putting so much pressure upon a global economy, they will act very quickly, very, very, very quickly and in a mostly nonpartisan way. I really, really, really hope we don't have to wait for that externality to be so global and so impactful that they go, oh, okay, now we'll change. No, it's changing already. It's, it's going to be okay. Say that one more time. <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. However, me and the people that listen to the show can help you make it okay, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Or if you need me in any way at all, please help me help you because I will also be there in 2050. But all I know how to do is make podcasts and make television. I don't know how to take carbon out of an industrial process and lock it up <laughs> into a building material, but you do. So, I can help by helping you and people like you. So if there's anything that I can do or people, anything you need me to share around the world or whatever, like please don't hesitate, okay? Thank you so much. No worries. I'll be calling on you. Don't worry. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Like I'm serious. Like you need me to be in a video or you need me to do something that I'm good at so I can help you, like call me, all right, because <laughs> – my kids will be there. My, 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 my eldest will be in her 40s. My youngest will be in his 30s in 2050. Yeah. Okay? And that's my age, and I don't want them to deal with the world on fire and underwater, to be honest. So I would like them to have a nice life, and I need to make sure that happens. You know, it goes beyond me just making sure that there's money in the bank and that they go to a good school. It's like, well, I've got to make sure they've got somewhere to fucking live and air to breathe. Because at the moment, it's not looking like that, you know. We had a heck of a summer here in Australia. I'm sure in Canberra, you were breathing it in. Yeah, we, we had the worst air quality in the world um, for two or three days mm. in January, December. Wow. Like worse air quality than New Delhi or wow. um, or Shanghai or Beijing. It was, it was nuts. Well, speaking of hope, a mate in Delhi, she sent a picture out of her apartment window the other day and she said, I've lived here my whole life. I've never seen blue sky. And it's just, there was peerless blue sky in Delhi the other day. Mm. And, you know, as when you look at what air pollution does for health, 
I really, really hope that as a global community, we start to really ask ourselves, well, hang on a second, why are we in such a rush to get back to that? Right now, health is the most important thing we have because it doesn't matter if we've got money if we're dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I can't, you know. It's true. I, I feel that whatever the change that you and I were on Q&A asking for, I 100% feel that we've already kicked off from the top of the ski lift. We've already, we're already heading towards the moguls. You know, yeah. we're, we're already on the way down the hill. We're already going. And it's just kind of happened and we're like, oh, shit, we're in it. You know? That's true. <laughs> How it's going to end up and what we ask for as what we go back to, that's all up to us now. And, you know, that's super important that we all remember that. You're doing a, a lot to help climate change and to spread the message and to keep people informed. I just noticed that a few times you minimise the impact that you're having on the world and climate change. And just wanted to say that as someone who actually cares, and you talk about it every week. I do. And it's something that's core to who you are and to your purpose. So you, I just wanted to pick you up on that. Thanks. You're, Thank you. Yeah, you don't you you don't have you don't have a monopoly on imposter syndrome, Sophia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> look, I, I have to be very aware of it. And going on Q and A, I had to be really, really, really careful that I had all my ducks in a row because I had so publicly talked about having episodes of psychosis and delusion around it, and I needed to be sure that when I went on television, I didn't come across as if I was a babbling crazy man like I had been in the past. So I do think sometimes that I talk about it too much. But I do try and talk about it in a way that is immediate, uh, is hopeful. I mean, look at us. You're talking about creating an entire industry literally out of thin air uh, and creating entire jobs that never existed before and seeing a gap in an industrial process where there is so much of a waste product that was just vanishing into nothingness and now you're able to make people will be able to feed their children and, and build entire homes that they can then live in out of whatever it is that you're creating out which was literally nothing and like we said before it's those two percent three percent solutions all added together that will help us get out of this because goodness me we fucking need it fast <laughs> oh man um, I better let you go. Have a cracking afternoon with your flatmates. Uh, do, are you all, everyone go back to their own room and watch the Netflix or are you all together? We're all going to watch Tiger King. Do you all have a show you watch together? Like, how does it work? Well, we don't have a TV. <laughs> That's even better. That's killer. Um, we have this amazing backyard and uh, it's got a walnut tree in it. Mm. And both of my housemates meditate. Mm -hmm. And so we spend a bit of time just... Um, still in distance with each other, but just hanging out, gardening, listening to music. Um, one of my housemates is a musician, and so he plays guitar and sings. And so I feel like our house is this very positive, fertile ground for growth. And even though we are isolated from the rest of the world, I'm so glad that I'm living with somebody I'm living with two legends. Mm. And so we are going to probably – I got oysters on the weekend because it was my birthday Happy last birthday. week. And really? What day so is your birthday? Gonna, 31st of March. 29. So close. Oh! So close. <laughs> what a great time for a birthday. <laughs> Sometimes I get an entire long weekend for my birthday, yes, but not same. all the time. <laughs> Look, if we can figure out one thing, 
why does Jesus get born on the same day every year, but he chooses a different day to die every year? Like, it's the great mystery of my entire life. All right? <laughs> I, never I like having it variable. Sometimes <laughs> it's nowhere near Easter and sometimes it's smack bang in the middle. So, And I think the moon's a good way to decide. <laughs> Why not? It worked for centuries. Why doesn't it work now? All right, Sophia, have a cracking Arvo. Thank you so much for your time. You're the best. Thank you, Watcher. That was Sophia Hamblin-Wang. Extraordinary, extraordinary young 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 woman and doing incredible things. And the, the thing that gives me extraordinary hope is there's many, many, many people like her. But they need our support. I remember when I first got really freaking weirded out about climate anxiety, I just I remember writing down in my notebook, I don't know how to help, but I can help those who do know. And Sophia is one of those people that do know. So if it's in your wheelhouse, do what you can to help people like Sophia because it's going to help all of us. Thank you so much to Sophia for being on the show. Thanks to Andy Marr, my audio producer. Thanks to Rachel Barrett, my show producer. Uh, uh, Hayley Vanspania, who uh, helped me out with all the social stuff this week. Mike Mills, toe hider for all the great music. Um, Don't forget uh, Midair Brawl. It's got nothing to do with climate change. Um, It's just a hilarious conversation between Luke Heggie and Nick Cody about... um, punch-ups on planes. (laughs) Sometimes I need respite, guys, and that's where I go. All right, people are coming over for scones, so I'd better get out of here. Have a cracking... Because, it's you know, we've lifted restrictions, so we can have two people and their kids over, so we're having two people and their kids over to come and eat scones, so we're very excited about that, having other people at home for the first time in a while. Uh, So uh, stay safe, wash your hands, don't touch your face, leave plenty of room for other people to walk past you when you're on the street. Be smart about it. Be kind. We're all in this together. Try and get some sleep. You're the best. I'll see you Friday. Until we talk then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.